A while back, earlier this year in January, I um, preached, and I use this as the backdrop um, about that's the view from Mount Sinai. Um, it's an unbelievable mountain, obviously in the middle of nowhere still today. No trees, no grass, stones. If all you want to do is cultivate stones, it's a great place to go. And look in the distance. It's just right there in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. You could get a drone and fly it for hours and it will just get lost because it just goes on and on. And there's this one massive mountain behind where that's taken. And Sinai stands right above it. It really is a remarkable place to think of that story of how they got there, camped at the bottom, and then, of course, Moses went up and back. Believe me, if you don't have a camel, it kills you. So I thought I'd use that, given that what we're talking about today is the Word of God. So I wanted to start with a, uh, a heading. The Bible is a supernatural book, but I changed my mind. Because if we call it just a book, we're kind of just saying, well, it's a supernatural book, that it's just a book. The Bible ain't just a book. Um, and if that doesn't make sense, that's fine, because that's what I'm going to try and talk about today, is that what I'm actually saying is the Bible, this, this thing, is supernatural. So that's kind of different than just saying it's a supernatural book. What I'm saying is this, in my hands, is supernatural. Supernatural, that's a word we don't often hear nowadays, isn't it? Supernatural. In other words, something that doesn't make sense, it don't add up, no matter what our quantum theories all might say, it just don't make any sense. It's super above, beyond anything in the natural. Science can't work out this book. Scientists can look at it, they can work out every jot and tittle, they can, they can look at it from a scientific point of view, you can look at it from a scholarly point of view, but that doesn't mean you get the fact that it's supernatural. It is above that. And that's what I'm kind of talking about today, so it's pretty rare. I don't think I've ever spoken about something quite like this before because this is going right back to my roots. And that's why I've got my old Bible. This is 35 years old from when I became a Christian in 1980-something, 80 middle of the 80s. It's got notes. Have you got one of these at home, some of you? It's got notes and junk all the way through it. It's held together by gaffer. And I just love this because it's kind of me and my God's supernatural so I thought I'd bring it up and, and remind there's some of these things in the seats because we don't use them much now with our apps, do we? And it's just not... I'm in, I'm, you, I, I know I'm going to get accused of being called an, an old fella that's not into digital. My career is digital. I build apps. I'm a digital person, believe me. But there is, you can't hold an, a phone up. This is supernatural because it's just one app among billions, isn't it? Because your phone can hold billions of these books, billions, squillions in your phone. But it's something about this book and that's what we're going to kind of try and talk about. So here we go. Uh, two different versions of that same scripture. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Um, I thought that's slightly in line with what you're following, the CrossFit about exercise for the body. This one goes the whole way. It just says, well, flesh just profits nothing. Let's just talk about the spirit. And then the, old, the new King James, the NKG, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. It's just a beautiful verse. But what I want to talk about are these things. The translations. 
Have you ever wondered why you can pick up the Bible in the pew and read it and, and, and it's not the way you've remembered it because at home or in something you've remembered it in a different version? About 30 years ago when I became a Christian, there was about four that you could choose from, but everyone I hung around chose the NIV. I call that the nearly inspired version because I don't like it. I stick with the old, not the old, but the new King James. And it's like, have you got the message? Remember when the message came out? It's like, man, that's a profound read. And of course, anyone who knows anything about the Bible knows that the more translations they make, the more you need to buy, have them on your shelf. And if you want to study something seriously, you get them all out. Never, ever just read one translation. That's just a standard biblical thing. And there's kind of a reason for that. There's a basic list of the most popular ones that are read today with all their little KJV, the King James, that's 500 years old. And you just, you just go down through that and you kind of think, man, that's exhaustive. That is a lot of different translations of this book, of this stuff that's in this. But do you know how many there really are? 450 translations of the Bible on the planet today. Over 400 and over 450 different ways you can read this silly book. Is that crazy? 450. What would drive people to want to make, oh, I'm going to make another one? It's not something you can just turn around and do with an app on the phone and do a translation app like you can with French. You know, you put it in and it'll come back and try and tell you what you've just put into Google in French. You don't kind of translate the Bible the same way, probably because it's pretty old and you need a little bit more than just Google Translate. 450. Oh. Well, you're probably wondering how I'd get to a steam engine. <laughs> There's usually one. I haven't used a steam engine picture for, for weeks. And when... Melanie is looking at me with that look that's even worse than when her mum looks at me in the middle of a sermon. And for that very reason, I'm going to get up here because I need a helper. That, that engine, 260 tonnes, 98 feet long, is sitting just less than a kilometre from us. That's the H-Class. Most of you probably don't know that. That's the biggest steam engine ever built in Australia. It was built at Newport Workshops in 1941, and it sits in the museum. It's the pride of our museum. There was only one of them ever built because diesels came and ruined the Victorian railways. That is the most... It's known all around the world. Okay, I thought that was impressive. (laughs) But what I've got to show you here, if I can open this, is something that as a kid I used to lie on the floor in my lounge room because Dad had these these things and they meant old, old blueprints. Remember blueprints? But look at this. When I was a kid, hold it right up, that is that. And you can kind of make out the outline. It's not the tender, it's just the loco part. That's a one-inch to a foot scale um, blueprint. This belonged to the Victorian Railways, and in the 1950s, no one could get these. They were considered top secret, as everything was in the wake of the war, because he was built during the war. But my dad had access to these to build blueprints of models that people would build models of. So it's a really bizarre story. So I've got a whole set of these, the Victorian. You can see I've laminated it because of the, there's gaffer and that all over the back of it. But my point, what's my point? That wonderful looking steam engine that you can look at, this is what's called a general arrangement plan. And anyone knows how to read it, you can actually turn this into that 3D. You can see it. 
But if you don't kind of know how to read it, look at the complexity of all those lines. That tells you what's behind, what's, what's underneath it, what's in the guts, how many tubes are in the boiler. See down in here? All sections and cross-sections, and you can look at every single detail. That's what I say as a kid, I used to lay on the floor and go over every nut and bolt on my glorious heavy Harry. And Melanie's looking at it going, wow. You can see where the moths have eaten it, but you can, this one a magnificent... That was drawn by a whole lot of people right here. Isn't that fantastic? Okay, that's history. We can put it down. So, what am I saying? It's like, that's the picture. And what I'm trying to kind of get across today is the amount of complexity that is in my hand. The complexity. We don't like talking about that because it's kind of not a, a funky kind of thing to talk about. I'm using words like supernatural and complexity. Great if we were in Bible college. Great, you know, just sit down and discuss it and a lot of this stuff people discuss and fight and all that. But what I, what I want to do is get a healthy respect today for the reality of what I'm holding in my hands. Because we can easily, especially with our apps and with digital technology, the way we look at everything today, I think we can kind of take for granted the complexity of what I'm holding in my hands. And why, when we share communion, we read a scripture and we, and, and, and we see it as something deep. As some, there's something deep about even singing a song. Why? Because of the complexity of what's in this book. It's not just a book. I don't know how many words are in it. There's lots and lots of words. But that's not what it's about. Because Jesus said, the words I speak are spirit. What I'm holding in my hands is the word of God. It's It's spiritual. It's bizarre, isn't it? As complex, I mean, how as complex as that engine is, I've got to move on. Because it doesn't mean anything compared to the complexity of what is in this book. Just a little background. The Bible is incredibly complex. Thank you, Tex. There's, of course, what we call the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, 39 books in the Old, 27 in the New, 66 books all up if you're superstitious. <gasps> ah, 666. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> it was written over a period of about 1,500 years. If you want to go from about the time of Moses, book of Job, back to Abraham, when writing began, you know, hieroglyphics in Egypt and all that, when writing began to, eh, maybe 1,500 years, give or take a decade, up to about the time of 100 years after Jesus. 1,500 years maybe. So it's about 2,000 years ago. 1,500 years, and you're already hearing the argument, aren't you? How many times have we had it? It's an old book. It was written thousands of years ago. What reference could it have to today? You've heard it all, yeah? How many times have we heard that? How many times, whether it's even on television now, do you hear that same old stupid argument? It is the dumbest, stupidest, silliest argument. We'll watch a movie about uh, Julius Caesar and consider it natural history. I mean, would anyone dare question Caesar that he existed? No one. Six documents. There's about six documents that are written that would prove Caesar as it happened. Have a look a little bit down. 20,000 bits of the New Testament. I use the term bits. We're not just talking fragments the size of a little... We are talking manuscripts, 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 found all over, all over the Middle Eastern places, 
like one in Egypt, and it matches almost exactly to the one that was found over in Greece. And that almost matches exactly to the one that was down in Ethiopia. Yes, Ethiopia. Manuscripts. They put them all together and they actually find, just like when they found the Old Testament book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, very little discrepancy. Oh, but there's discrepancy. Yes, because sometimes a full stop was missed. That's, that's how stupid most of the discrepancies. So if someone comes along and says, oh, that's an old book. It's been translated thousands of times. You can say, well, yeah, 450 times because there's 450 different versions. That you can cross-reference. And when you cross-reference them, they'll have a little thing in the bottom that will tell you a full stop was missing here. I mean, I'm using that in English. But what I'm saying is the slightest discrepancy is nothing that changes the complexity of our faith. That, that argument is shot, especially given that how many... Oh, I'll move on to the scholars, but that's right, the one on the bottom there. Centuries of work to form the canon. Anyone know what canon is if you haven't been to Bible college? That's another word we really we just don't use anymore, canon. You know, in war, no, spelt differently. The canon is why do we have 66 books? 39 in the Old Testament... 27 in the New Testament. Have you ever wondered about that? Who decides which books come in and which books go out? That's another one. It's a pretty good argument. Well, why do we have those 39 books and why those ones? Once again, centuries of fighting. Scholars. People who leave us for dead in our digital age in terms of their knowledge. Fought for about 400 years. And don't forget that this is a Jewish Old Testament, that we have the faith of the Jews who are completely separate to the Christians, yet they have the same books. They have added other books in the middle. That, uh, if you're a Catholic, you would remember there's called the Apocrypha, some extra little books. But once again, the amount of scholarly, complex arguments and fighting over centuries and centuries and centuries to form, and everybody came to the conclusion, 66 books. And it's stuck that way. So that's another argument that's a pretty hard argument. But what I wanted to do is maybe push on this thing. Translation is extremely complex. It's like that blueprint. You can't just do a, a, a quick, you know, like once again, Google search and work out how that blueprint became that steam engine. You know, it's incredibly complex. Tens of thousands of language experts... Think of that, language experts, not just people who knew how to use Google in 400 AD. Tens of thousands of language experts have made translation their obsession for 3,000 years. Do you know when the Jews copied a translation, because they didn't have photocopiers in the year 2000 BC or whatever, when Jews copied, and still to this day it's an art, you see it all over Israel, when Jews copied, for instance, a piece of paper like one of these here, sorry, Phil, a piece of paper like that. When they wrote it out, obviously a scribe would do it under torch, uh, torchlight, under candlelight. And when they wrote one page, obviously going in the other direction, they'd fill a page up. Guess what they'd do? They'd count from the top in, from the bottom up, and had to make sure that the middle, whatever the sign is, is the same sign in each page. That way the translation's accurate. And you kind of go, oh, well, what's that mean? 
That is why, once again, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the book of Isaiah matched absolutely perfectly, except for a few of those little discrepancies, with copies of Isaiah that were 1,000 years old, 600 years old. Isn't that incredible? 2,000 years old and yet found in completely different caves, so to speak. Why? Because the Jews for centuries have made this right up to the day. There are Jewish scribes that still believe it's the correct thing to do to the word of God. And every time they get to the word Yahweh, they stop and recite a prayer. So from the Jews, we go, thank you, thank you, thank you for your heritage. Why? Because we took it on. And then as New Testament scholars, people, they're, they're obsessive, aren't they, John? When you go to a language expert in Bible college, they're nuts. They seriously, yeah, Megan's going, yeah, 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 they are, they're nuts. Ricky Watts is a friend of ours over in, he's a nut. I mean, when you become a Bible scholar, you become a nut. Because they are so obsessive over this thing. They are the people that we are sitting here on the, writing on the backs of. A guy, I used the name Ricky Watch. He's a dear friend, was a drummer 30 years ago. I knew him as a drummer. And he went over because he was interested in translation. And he is now one of the world's leading scholars in translation. Was it Habakkuk? One of his books that he did? He, you know, yeah. Isaiah, yeah, like, I mean, this is just a, a drummer kid from Melbourne, Pentecostal church, went over and he now lectured these guys in Regent. Did you have Ricky at all? Yeah, in Canada, and he's now back working with Alpha Crucis in Sydney. So he's a nut. If you know Ricky before he went, he was a little bit tipsy, but if you know Ricky now, he's a complete old, a little bit older than me, nut. But when you actually start talking to him about translation, you just get overwhelmed. Because he is an expert. And when you're in, the th- in, in, in sitting in a room with an expert, you know, it's just... A, have you ever sat in a room with an expert in something? They're nuts. You can't work them out. But when you start talking about what they're an expert in, you just, you just get flooded with this, don't you? Something incredibly special. Well, that's the complexity that I want us to give praise to today. That God has raised up over the last 3,000 years... Nuts. Crazy people who just like I'm a nut for steam engines. Yes, I'm a nut for the word of God, but I am not one of these kinds of nuts. These people are unbelievable, the detail that they learn. And when they put that into the translations that we read, see what I've said at the bottom? You can be absolutely sure that what you are reading in your Bible today is what God wanted to say to you. No questions, no opinions. Ooh, opinions. That's a word. (laughs) Because what are you here today? It's the day of postmodernism. It's the day of, well, your grey might not match your grey, but as long as our grey can get on together, everything's nice and grey. If God wanted it grey, he would have made sure he said it's grey. Instead, he said, the words that I speak are spirit and they bring life. Many on that day walked away. Why? Because the things you say, Jesus, are too hard. Many on that day. Read chapter 6 of John because he's talking about eat my body, drink my blood. He's talking to Jewish people, something that is outrageously wrong. Outrageously wrong against their culture. 
Outrageously wrong, drinking blood and eating flesh. No Jew even alive on this planet today would dare even consider that's a possibility. We look back and we go, oh yes, it's spiritual. Well, it's not when Jesus was saying these words. Because when he said this to these Jewish, thousands of Jewish followers, it says, many turned away and walked away from Jesus. And he turned to the disciples and he said, what are you going to do? And they turned around. Of course, Peter came out. Lord, where, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's not great. I, no, I was going to say it would be easier to preach if it was great, but actually it's not. It's so much harder to make sense of this book if you want to make it great. Because it doesn't do shades of grey. It doesn't do that. Is it? it, it Lord, give me a break. Well, yeah, okay, but my word is my word. And here's where it's different. It's, a, it's not easy following this thing, is it? Yes, it's complex. Yes, we love it. But sometimes it downright challenges us and it makes our life so flipping hard. Instead of just having a fight with that person, walking away and shaking the dust, he might just say in his word, go and ask forgiveness or go and give forgiveness. If it's grey, we can argue our way out of it. If we make the book grey, we can argue our way around anything. Oh, well, resurrection. Mm, Yeah, well, you know, so you don't understand. In those days, in that culture, it's so easy to downplay this book with waffle, with postmodern grey waffle. And you can hear now I'm really saying this is an old Pentecostal Bible-believing. Please don't ever neglect the complexity of this wonderful book. It is supernatural. Yes, it is hard, as Jesus said on this day. But man, do you have eternal life when you, when you adore the words in this book? And that's where I'm going. We're finishing off. God has revealed himself through words. Have you ever wondered about that? He actually chose to lock himself into words. Jesus is described as the word of God. I mean, there's another 10,000 sermons just in that alone. The opening of John, the Logos. What does Logos mean to the Greek thinker? Um, It's absolutely beautiful that Jesus is called the word of God. That in itself, what a massive play. And of course, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. This is their identity. Their identity is their word. Have you ever, ever said something and wish you could take it back? Oh. Oh. How, is it just me <laughs> who's walked away and just gone, why did I say that when I could have said that? Why didn't, why didn't I say that when I should have said that? It's, it's powerful, isn't it? Words are incredibly powerful. And that's what this is all about. Words are incredibly powerful. What God has spoken, he will never take back. What he has said over you, what he has given you in eternal, he'll never take back. His word never changes. Isn't that beautiful? It's not great. It's not negotiable. Why? Because what he has given you is rock solid. He will never, ever, ever change his mind or take it back. You are saved. You are a child of the living God. You have eternal life. You will reign on this beautiful planet as a new planet for all eternity. Why? Because he will never take his word back from you. Oh, that's better than me. 
Exodus, the Ten Commandments. In the Psalms, meditate and memorise. Learn to sing my word so you never forget it. Proverbs, the wisdom of God. Jesus, the word became flesh. In Acts, have a study of the book of Acts. It never says the church grew. It very, very rarely says the church grew. You know what it says? Look it up. The word grew. It says, and the word grew and multiplied in this region. And the word grew and multiplied. The word? Yeah, the word. Isn't that, isn't that stunning? Even the early church recognised what was it that their faith, everything was built on. The word. Isn't that fantastic? The Bible is the supernatural wisdom, knowledge, revelation, more mind, heart and nature of God. It ain't just a book. Thank goodness. It's a wonderful supernatural Oh, so here's my last scripture. This is out of Peter, great apostle, who said that line, where will we go, you have the words of eternal life. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, so now you must show, look at this, straight to us, love each other as brothers and sisters. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's Peter saying to you, you're a Christian and you ain't never going to be not a Christian. Remember my last sermon? It's really hard to give up your salvation. And what Peter then finishes with is what Isaiah wrote, who I've been speaking about, oh, about a thousand years earlier or so. All flesh is, this is more poetic, all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of God remains forever. There is absolutely no doubt that's what Jesus had in his mind when he said, my words are spirit and they bring life. The book of Isaiah, because we know he loved it. He was a Jew. We'll close. Thank you. I pray. Father, we thank you so much for what we have in your word. Father, we thank you that we can have all of these copies in our hands, that we're, we have access Lord, so many people on this planet don't have the access we have. Please help us to be worthy of the great access that we have to your words, to your revelation, to your love, to your nature, to who you are, your wisdom. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to be, Lord, Christians with wide open eyes in this crazy world, to see what you're saying and to speak your word on your behalf, just as your apostles and just as your own son Jesus did. We love you, Lord. We thank you for everything and every blessing you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Phil.